Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of PAS FML, the podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and today's episode is all about my current clinical rotation in the emergency department. Now, I had originally intended for this to be two episodes, but as life tends to get a little crazy in PA school, I ran out of time, so I've put them back-to-back together for one double-length feature episode here. So, lucky for you, you have the use of your pause button, so you can come in and out whenever your life allows you to come back. And I promise I won't have any hard feelings if you split this up in whatever way you see fit. So let's get going. Let me begin by giving a little bit of background about the ED that I'm specifically at. This ED is pretty rural, and by that I mean we don't even have a target in town. I think we've got a Costco and a Safeway, so I'm not in the complete sticks. It's not like I'm out in the middle of some crazy place in Alaska, but it is quite rural. And because of that, it's kind of a small community. And the reason I bring that up is because the way that my ED functions here is it's got 20 beds that act truly as an emergency like hospital department. And then there's like five other rooms that truly operate more like an urgent care. And that's super helpful because truthfully, it's what the community needs. So things that come through the door that are only people needing to get stitches removed. Well, that obviously doesn't need a whole hospital bed and an EKG monitor. So they just get put over here in this little side room and truthfully, the PAs staff that. So it's it's really nice because A, it's what the community needs, and B, it's a really good example of kind of the mid-level provider name that PAs have for ourselves. It's just a really good example of that. We allow the MDs to take some of that higher acuity stuff that comes through the doors and take on some of those lower acuity acuity patients for them. I mean, this is kind of the inception of what the PA career was built on. And personally, I'm I, I think that's great. That I'm more than happy to function as part of the team in that capacity. It's a really unique answer that this community has come up with, and I I think that's neat. Personally, I've always come from bigger cities, and I thought that the you know the emergency room is the emergency room and they dealt with emergencies but from my experience out here these smaller communities in these rural areas the ED is a place to go when you've got anything wrong and I think that's good because ultimately it's helping the community and the and the people in it and that's you know really what we're here to do now we can get in a whole new segment later on about well, let's talk about why somebody might need to go to the ED because they don't have access to, let's say, a primary care provider. But we'll get into that later, and uh, that's a touch of politics that I'm not specifically interested in getting into today. So we'll put that on the back burner for later. But for now, it's a really unique thing that the ED provides to the community here. So that is where I'm rotating now. And I guess I'll also mention that I haven't had the same preceptor. Well, I have a main preceptor, which is also a dumb word. I really 
I really don't like the word preceptor because it sounds way too similar to another word that has absolutely nothing to do with it. But I don't like the word preceptor. I feel like it's dumb and made up. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I am probably the idiot here because that often happens in my life. But it sounds too much like the word prospector to me. And so whenever I hear the word pre, pre, prospector, no, preceptor. Yeah, I, I can't even get it right half the time. It just conjures up this picture of like some old, some old white guy with some huge white beard down to his knees, like panning for gold in some stream somewhere. And it's just, it's just some dumb thing that I have in my brain. Those two words are just crossed in my brain. So I'm probably the only one that has a problem with it. But why do we have to make up our own words? That's just dumb. Can't you call him my clinical mentor or person who is supposed to make sure that I don't kill any patients because of course that's that's what they're truly doing they're like patient protector a patient protector b like that's what their name should be but nonetheless we've come up with a name we're going to call them preceptors and everybody else can just go fuck themselves because that's the word we're using and end rant so getting back to what I was saying before I got side railed there I have rotated with a whole bunch of different preceptors, both MDs and PAs, and that's really actually been pretty neat because everybody, of course, is their own provider, whether they're a PA or an MD, and so they have their own way that they approach things and their own way of clinically reasoning through things, and it's, as a newbie in all of this, it's been really nice to see how everybody has just kind of a different thought process through things and and even hearing the different words that they use to explain things to patients. So that's been really helpful, especially so early on in my clinical training. Now, before I go into the clinical medicine side of things here, I wanted to touch on the flow of how my day has been. In the ED, it's a little less constricted and a little less prescribed if I can use that word non non ironically in that you kind of have a say in who you see and when you see them so it's been nice because if you have to go pee you just go pee and when I want to get a coffee I just stand up and go downstairs and get a coffee and that's been really nice so I, I like that pace personally and it kind of gives you the ability to create your day and your shift into the flow that you want it. But what it ends up turning into then is somebody comes in, you pick up their chart, you take a look through the computer system to see if they've been here before because I've made the mistake of not looking at their previous admissions and seeing that maybe they were here for the same thing four days ago and it's gotten worse or maybe they maybe they come 15 times a month and that obviously can be very telling so i guess my pro tip number 1 is to check your computer system and see when the last time they were in for similarly if the patient had been hasn't been in in 2 years it might indicate that they're a pretty healthy person and so whatever is going on today is is maybe a huge deal for them. And even if they say that their pain is maybe only a four out of 10, this is somebody who doesn't come to the hospital. So you, you need to take that four out of 10, maybe with a grain of salt and, and make it amp it up a little bit higher in, in your kind of clinical diagnoses there. So at any rate, trying to figure out 
how frequently they use the emergency services would be a good thing to figure out before you go see the patient. So patient chart flops on your desk, look through the EMR, which of course stands for electronic medical record. And every hospital or major service provider should have one of these at some point. I know there's a handful of places that use handwritten, no pun intended, health record systems, but most of them you should be able to get access electronically. Most people use Epic, just another buzzword to get in your brain if you've never heard it before. So circling back to what the flow of the day looks like in the ED or what your shift rather looks like in the ED you get the patient info, take a look and see when they've been here, what their chief complaint is, and then you go talk to the patient and you take their history and you do your physical exam and you most likely order labs and, and or imaging. That's just about everybody who comes through because, you know, our differential for belly pain is super, super vast. How are you going to figure that out unless you get labs and imaging? So, most of the people, you're going to get your CBC and CMPs, and I'll actually go through this here just in the very next um, bit. So you do your labs and imaging, and then you go back to your desk, and you can either input right then your history and physical, or, or maybe you've got a scribe who came with you to the room, and that's awesome because they do your history and sometimes some of the physical right then and there. So having a scribe is amazing. You people are the unsung heroes of the hospital for sure. So you get back to your desk and you can finish part of your chart or maybe there's another stack of patients who just came through the door and you can pick one of those charts up and start the whole process over again. But what you end up doing is kind of setting up this domino effect for all of the patients who, who you've already seen. And, and just when you kind of set one stack down the road, you pick up another patient and kind of start their domino cascade. And so you just, you kind of have all these pots on the stove cooking at one time, and it's kind of a juggling act to use all those various visualizations. And you just kind of, you just kind of keep going. And thankfully your electronic health record takes care of all of them for you so that you know who you're seeing and when patient A's labs come back and when patient B's EKG is done and the nurses, of course, are coming up to you saying, oh, here's the UA that you ordered and oh, the x-ray is being read right now. Why don't you go take a look? And all of these things are going on at once and it sounds more chaotic than it actually is in real life. Not to say that it doesn't get chaotic if you've got multiple traumas coming through or some possible end stemmies coming through all at the same time. That certainly can get overwhelming, but things are just kind of going ongoing at all the time. And that's why I say you have the ability to go pee when you need to, and you have the ability to just take lunch when you need to take lunch. I mean, you know, certainly you want to see some of the urgent things and get those going on the labs and imaging before you drop it and turn around and start something new. But it's really quite flexible. And I, again, for one, have really, really enjoyed that. And and as long as you are keeping tabs on kind of where along the assembly line each patient is, 
it's pretty manageable. And it's kind of like a detective game in that each lab or imaging study that comes back adds one more clue to what's going on. And it's kind of fun to piece it together there and hopefully arrive at a diagnosis so that you can fix it and get your patient feeling better. Or sometimes, of course, you don't really know what's going on. And that's where the clinical skills of, okay, is this person sick or not sick? And you either need to admit them if they're sick or if they're not sick, send them home with very good detailed return to clinic instructions. So that's in an overall nutshell of what what a shift in the emergency department looks like. So now I think it would be a good time to get into some some of the more actual like clinical medicine of again chief complaints and things that these patients are presenting with and I thought a good way of doing that actually would be through my own case logs, which we have to turn in at the end of each rotation. So again, now that I literally only have one more shift before I'm done, my case logs are 98% complete. So I figured it would just be smart to start at the top and go through the details of the case logs so that you can see for yourself, what does it look like? What are the kinds of things that you're dealing with? Um, And as per usual, of course, this is just one person's experience, so obviously won't be applicable to everyone, but here you go. Here's the behind the scenes. So according to my cases, I have seen 215 patients in almost a six-week rotation. Average time spent with them has been 31 minutes. And as far as age ranges, I'd say maybe a little less than a quarter have been birth to age 17. About 30% of my patients have been age 18 to 49, 20% has been, have been age 50 to 64, and then 25% have been over age 65. Um, the thing that I thought would be super interesting for, well, for you listeners to hear would be like the top 10 ICD-10 diagnosis categories that I saw. So I'm going to read them out in order of most frequent to less frequent, and I'll try to give about like a top 10. So the number one thing that I saw patients for was other joint disorders, not elsewhere classified. So essentially that is joint and bone pain. That is the number one thing that I saw people for who came through the ED department. And again, keep in mind that sometimes I worked in the true ED department and other times I was functioning more along the lines of their urgent care. But again, if you end up in a rural area, maybe that's how yours is going to be too. So joint problems was the number one thing that I saw patients for. And the number two thing was actually soft tissue infections. So primarily like cellulitis or MRSA were the two big things that I saw. Um, Obviously, you can get cellulitis, which is just a skin infection. And essentially, my limited understanding is if it's draining pus material, i.e. if it's purulent, then you can call it MRSA. Otherwise, it could be a whole host of other things. So soft tissue infections was complaint number two. Complaint number three was open wounds of the head. So essentially people coming in because their face was split open somehow by a myriad of ways that that happened. After wounds of the face and scalp, uh, let's see, number four was rash. So A lot of times I didn't even know what was causing it. It was maybe just a contact dermatitis or like an allergic reaction to something. But 
I think once I saw like hot tub folliculitis or was it strep? I think I saw like a strep rash infection. Uh, otherwise, I, we just didn't, we didn't name them in the ED. We we're just like, oh yeah, that's a rash. So that was number four. Number five is back pain, different from the first one, which was of course just kind of like general joint complaints. Uh, number five, very specifically back pain. And I will interject kind of a pro tip here to tell you that I kind of felt woefully unprepared to do a physical exam and do and do a medical decision making about low back pain very specifically the vast majority of people who come through complained of low back pain but every now and again it was cervical and mid back pain but I would highly recommend that you look through your notes or look through Bates on what you do for a low back pain physical exam and if you do, what are the indications for a workup? What are the indications for immediate imaging versus what are the things that you can just treat conservatively? Uh, I really wish I had known that before or at least spent some better time looking at it just because, again, back pain is number five on the list of things that I saw. So get that under your belt and also don't do what I do. Don't forget to check reflexes and don't forget to ask about bowel and bladder complaints because my preceptor asked about that probably like the first five patients who came through before I got it through my dumb head that I needed to start asking about those things. So ask about that. Uh, Number six on the list is abdominal pain. And just because I said abdominal pain, that doesn't necessarily always mean that the patient is having nausea as well, because nausea is actually a little bit lower on the list. But abdominal and pelvic pain is right after back pain. And after abdominal pain, number seven is AMS, so altered mental status. A lot of these people were actually post-seizure. And the word that means that is post-ictal. So if you hear that post-ictal, it just means that the patient has a seizure and they're kind of out of it in the more immediate like minutes right after they have one. So a lot of it was indeed like post-seizure activity, but also just people being somnolent because maybe they've had a stroke or they're drunk, truthfully. That happened a lot of times. So some kind of random uh, AMS here. Um, number, God, what was I on? Five, six, seven, eight. Number eight was cystitis. So bladder infections. That was something that I found myself looking up a lot. And the correlation between what makes something a bladder infection versus what makes something pyelonephritis versus like, how does a kidney stone fit into all that? So another pro tip there, look that stuff up and make sure you have a really good grasp about what differentiate those kinds of things and which ones need different kinds of imaging studies. And at what point do you want to admit somebody for that? Because most of those folks I actually discharged home, but a handful of them, we ended up, we ended up admitting to the hospital. So knowing where that line in the sand is for go home versus inpatient was really important when it comes to all like the bladder and kidney things. Moving on to number nine is problems breathing. Essentially, this was two categories that I saw. It was either kiddos with asthma or older people with COPD. So that was breathing problems. After breathing, number 10 was chest pain. Again, maybe if I had shadowed more MDs, I would have seen more chest pain. Or maybe if I were in a, a bigger city hospital where kind of all the, you know, the sexy chest pains go, maybe that's, maybe I would have seen more chest pains there. But 
nonetheless, um, chest pain was a little bit lower on my top 10 list for things that people came in with. And I got to tell you, I think I only saw one end STEMI in the entire six weeks, one end STEMI. We talked all about end STEMIs and didactic gear, of course, because those are the ones that, you know, you really need to get that patient off, off to the cath lab. But at least in my experience, end STEMI was not a common occurrence. Uh, saw a handful of STEMIs, actually, but a lot of other people just were coming in with, truthfully, anxiety or epigastric stuff. They, they were calling it chest pain, but when you actually sit down and took their history, they'd maybe just had a huge meal or they have a long-standing history of stomach ulcers and they've been off their PPIs for like three months. So the words that the patient themselves used when they talked to EMS was chest pain. And so you get all hot to trot in the emergency department. Oh, you know, let's, you know, make sure we do a nice cardiac workup on this person. And then they get there and you're like, oh, you just, okay, you just ate something that didn't, didn't agree with you. So not as uh, open and shut case as you might think. So that was chest pain. After that was, truthfully, acute pharyngitis. So pretty lower on the list there was like sore throat things. And then after sore throat was uh, general nausea and vomiting. So again, that kind of goes with or without belly pain. Sometimes sometimes they come together, sometimes they don't. So abdominal pain was something I saw more frequently. Nausea and vomiting way later on the list. And let's see, after nausea and vomiting, fractures of wrist and the hands. And after fractures of the wrist and the hand, actually had bee stings. None of them were anaphylaxis, though, of course, I would encourage you to make sure that you knew what to do for somebody coming in with anaphylaxis. Obviously, just because I didn't see it doesn't mean that you won't. After bee stings, sepsis. I didn't have sepsis, but um, on my list here that I'm reading off of, sepsis after bee stings. So Another pro tip that I would give you is to definitely refresh and commit to memory the sepsis and SERS criteria. I had maybe two or three MDs that I followed when a patient came in and the nurse gave us their vitals. The first thing that the MD asked me was, great, does this person meet sepsis or SERS criteria? And I, of course, had to fumble with my words and come up with that canned response of, well, I remember that it included respiratory rate and fever, but I don't remember the other two. So let me go look that up and get back to you. I think I said that twice before I was just tired of looking like an idiot and put it in my brain. So go refresh your memory on that so you don't look like an idiot like I did. And then rounding out the list was manic episodes. I had two patients in the throes of a mania episode, and that was my list. So that's my list of the ICD-10 codes that I saw. So take that for what it's worth. Again, your rotation is not going to be 100% like mine, but yeah, pretty good shot of the things that I saw that came through, at least my emergency department slash urgent care out in the rural area. Next up, let's talk about some of the, the like CPT billing things that I did. Obviously did a lot of CBCs, a lot of CMP. Almost anybody who came through the hospital side got both of those blood tests just right off the bat. And then the next one was a UA. 
And I had an MD who gave me a great clinical pearl and reminder, truthfully, about the fact that the urine dips really aren't always that truthful. And so you just want to get a urinalysis on everybody, especially in the ED. Obviously, if you're in a different setting, maybe the urine dip is all you have, but at least in the hospital setting, you really should be outfitted and just grab a UA on your people. And so if I can take a quick little sidebar and give you a clinical pearl that the same MD shared with me about the UA to remind us that if the UA comes up nitrite positive, it is almost assuredly a UTI. So that's nitrite positive, almost assuredly a UTI. Now, what happens if you get leukocytes in there? So leukocyte positive actually could be from the skin or it could also be a UTI. So if you're debating between nitrite positive and leukocyte positive, the nitrite positive carries with it a much more consistent diagnosis of a UTI. Leukocytes, not so much. And if you see ketones that come through on the UA, that is an indication that the patient was maybe vomiting, that they're either diabetic type 2 or they're on the Atkins diet. So that's ketones. And if you see blood in there, it's possible that there could be a stone or also a UTI. So sometimes if you get a UTI, you can also get blood show up on the UA. And actually, that's it. That's all he had. If you remember nothing else about this, nitrite positive, almost assuredly a UA. So that's the little pearl that I can give you about interpreting UAs, which I myself was not that good at. So happy to extend that on to you guys. Going back to the CPT list, after UAs, I ended up doing a whole bunch of chest x-rays. Everybody got a chest x-ray, um, especially if they come in complaining of chest pain. Even the people who were coming in and it was turned out to be only GI stuff, all those fools got a chest x-ray as well. After chest x-ray was CT scan. We use this a lot primarily for the elder patients. And in our hospital, we consider anybody over age, I believe it is 65, to be quote unquote elderly. And so if these folks come in with a fall and hit their head, even if they don't lose consciousness, we get super nervous that there may actually be a brain bleed in there because as our brains get older, they tend to shrink a little bit and those blood vessels get thin. And of course, thin blood vessels are prone to bleeding. Again, over 65 in my hospital, if somebody falls and hits their head, even if they don't lose consciousness, we just grab that non-contrast CT. I stress non-contrast CT because, now why would we do that? Why would we not use contrast in a CT scan when we are ostensibly looking for blood, right? Because we're looking for a bleed. So we're looking for blood where it shouldn't be. Why would we use non-contrast? Genius tip, blood is its own contrast. What do you know? So you don't need contrast because blood's its own contrast. So non-contrast head CT for any of your elderly patients who fell and hit their head. After head CT, next on my list was troponin. Grabbed a troponin on a lot of people, on a ton of people. Obviously, that's just part of a good CARDS workup. And after troponin, x-rays in the knee, followed by x-ray of the wrist, and then CT of the abdomen. And for the CT of the abdomen, I actually had non-contrast CT of the uh, abdomen and pelvic area. Um, and that is because, like blood, 
kidney stones are their own contrast. So looking for a lot of kidney stones in the folks that came through my ED, and that's why we ended up using non-contrast. Now, I just had a gal yesterday who came in with acute onset abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting and back pain. And we were actually concerned about appendicitis in her. So we ended up doing a contrast looking for her appendicitis. And what do you know, lo and behold, it actually was appendicitis. So we got her in to see the surgeon that same day. After CT abdomen, the next one up was suture repair. The really neat thing about being in the rural community is that I got to do a ton of suturing because it's not like we had plastics on hand to deal with like the face repairs or the hand repairs. It's a small community. We just we just don't have that many resources. And it's, again, one of those things where we as PAs are highly qualified to suture someone. Again, kind of using our, our mid-level provider skills freeing up the MDs to really take care of those super complex people who come through the doors, we get to suture people up. So I saw a ton of suturing people who sliced any various parts of their body on various parts of things in the world. And I saw things as small as like one centimeter up until I think our our biggest one was like 23 centimeters long, which was crazy. And for that one, my preceptor and I started on opposite ends and kind of met. Um, well, we didn't meet in the middle. You actually start in the middle of the suturing and go out. But that's that's not a good vis- visualization. It'd be better to say we like met in the middle, like Lady in the Tramp. But but anyone for anyone who actually knows good suturing technique, that's actually terrible suturing technique. You want to start in the middle and go out, and that is actually what we did. And for that one, too, because it was so deep, we actually got to put in some horizontal mattress sutures. So y'all can look that up if you've never heard that word before. But for those of you who have been taught it before, like me, it's actually helpful. So my preceptor imparted some wisdom to me, and she said, out of all the sutures that you had to know, the horizontal mattress, the deep gaping stuff, and the simple interrupted, she said that's truly pretty much all she uses in the ED. If anything is more complicated than that and needs more of a sophisticated suture, you really should send them to um, a surgeon or plastic. So I personally did a ton of suturing, including on the face, which again, in maybe a bigger city where there were a ton of uh, surgeons around, those patients would have gone out and been referred to to those specialists. But In rural community, man, it's cowboy medicine out here, and I got to do a lot. And I'm going to throw a pearl pearl tip. I'm going to throw a pearl at you guys for suturing on the face, and that if a laceration crosses the vermilion border of the lip, and that's just simply the spot where your lip turns into the rest of your face. It's called the vermilion border, and it's where your lip stops being your lip and starts being your face. That's it. Um, So if you get a laceration that crosses essentially into the face or the lip, I guess depending on where it started, the most important stitch that you want to place is the one at the vermilion border. So start there 
because you really want to get a good line up there. That is the most important one that you're going to place. So start at the vermilion border, take your time, make sure that you really get a good matchup of the tissues and place that one very carefully. And then from there, again, go outward in either direction as you suture up the rest of the lac. That one at the vermilion border is the most important. The ethylon or non-dissolvable stitches actually heal better. And so again, if we're going to call the laceration at the vermilion border the most important stitch to place, we want also to use the best kind of suture material. So there's my diatribe on what I know about suturing. So yay, rule of medicine. All right, let's move on <laughs> to prescriptions. So looking at my logs, the top three prescriptions that we wrote for really are quite obvious as the big three winners. Number one, pain relievers. Pain relievers and fever reducers is officially the category title, but really and truly, it essentially is pain. I mean, if I, if I had to pick the number one thing that people come to the ED for, it is pain, whether it is chest pain, abdominal pain, back pain, ear pain, throat pain. People are coming to the ED with pain. And that is totally bore out by the sheer vast quantity of prescriptions that we wrote for pain. And if you even want to break it down even further into what types of prescriptions were we actually giving, they're broken into acetaminophen combinations, aspirin combinations, narcotics, which in my opinion, we really used a lot more narcotics than I thought should have gone out, but it's not like she just like wrote them for anybody. She really did try to be judicious about who she gave them to, but there was a lot more narcotic use than I was expecting. Um, but otherwise, her favorite medication to use was Toradol, which is just a super strong NSAID. And I'll, I'll say, for about nine out of 10 patients who were having pain, the shot of Toradol worked like a champ. People fucking loved that drug. So that's that's a great drug to go to because, of course, it's, it's not a narcotic. It's just a super high dose of an NSAID. And that really helped for a lot of inflammation, um, especially like when people were having joint pain. So get to know your favorite dosages of Toradol because we used it all the time. So... Toradol, narcotics, acetaminophen, and aspirin combinations, and then finally muscle relaxants. Most of the time we ended up writing for Flexeril, but get yourself familiar with Flexeril because I wasn't very familiar with it before I started. That takes care of the pain meds. Uh, number two on the list is actually infectious disease meds, so antibiotics. A lot of people are coming in for pain. Like I said, the vast majority of people who are coming in are coming in for pain, but right behind that is infection. And broken down even further, the specific antibiotics that I wrote for, which you would do well to brush up on, number one, hands down, the penicillins. So any and all of the penicillin derivatives, brush up on those in what common indications those are for. And a super close runner-up was cephalosporin. I used Keflex almost all the time. If the patient didn't need Augmentin or Amoxicillin, we were writing for Keflex. 
Um, again, a lot of these people were going to go outpatient with that. I'm sure I'd be using a lot more rocephin if it were inpatient because I believe rocephin is IV only, but uh, at least in the outpatient stuff, a ton of time we wrote for Keflex. After Keflex, there was a lot of fluoroquinolone use, uh, namely Cipro. So we used a lot of Cipro. And after Cipro, actually wrote for a lot of Doxy. And then behind Doxy was Bactrim. And I think I only wrote for one or two Z-Packs, which is um, the macrolide azithromycin. So those were the top bacterial fighting agents that we used. Penicillin and cephalosporin easily tied for first place. Cipro, then your tetracycline of doxycycline. Bactrim, which of course is TMP sulfa, and then the macrolide azithro. And then rounding out the top three medicines that we wrote for was GI complaints, meaning people coming in with nausea. And almost 100% of the time, we wrote for Zofran. Obviously, these people are coming in with complaints of vomiting. So you don't want to say, here's your PO medicine. So the really nice thing about Zofran is that it comes in a dissolvable tablet that the patient can put under their tongue. So it's a sublingual dissolvable thing. Alternatively, we also gave Zofran through IV. So between sublingual and IV, two really great methods to get Zofran into patients who are nauseous and vomiting. And I'm going to sidebar here to give another clinical pearl real quick and say that Zofran, A, not only does it work like a champ, and B, we have great routes of administration for it. Maybe twice we used a different agent for somebody who was still nauseous and maybe having some vomiting, but we used something called promethazine for anti-nausea in people who are also having high levels of acute ongoing anxiety. So like the people maybe who came in complaining of chest pain and then after you take their history, you kind of realize that it's maybe just like a panic attack. And I don't mean to deflate by any means how terrifying a panic attack feels. I have had several throughout my life, and I can tell you wholeheartedly, it absolutely feels like a heart attack, and you absolutely think you're going to die. And so, yeah, that's obviously anxiety producing. So I don't mean to diminish any of these people who are coming into the hospital with an anxiety attack, because anxiety is a real thing, and I'm actually even going to spend an entire episode talking about how to deal with that or what, how, how not to deal with it, which is what I ended up doing, which was a terrible idea. I just want to flat out say that some people are going to come through the ED complaining of chest pain, and it's going to be potentially just, quote unquote, an anxiety attack. But for some of those people who are having nausea with that promethazine, according to my preceptor, is a, is a really good agent to give them. So you can try the promethazine. If that doesn't help their nausea, then sure, give them the Zofran. as you know very few side effects um, from what I can tell. Promethazine, pro tip. All right, so those were the top three meds, pain meds, antibiotics, and then anti-nausea, i.e. Zofran. And then from there, we used a lot of pulmonary meds, meaning like the Duoneb. So the Duoneb is so named because it's got two medicines in it, namely ipratropium and then also albuterol. So the ipratropium is a mainstay of COPD medication and then, of course, the albuterol for your acute asthma attacks and also for your COPD exacerbation. So we use pulmonary meds quite frequently. And then behind pulm meds, we used a lot of antihistamines and steroids in conjunction with each other. So people who are coming in with allergic reaction to things. So that was kind of like a one-two punch for them. And 
I had a handful of patients who we ended up doing CARDS meds for, so essentially vasodilators, i.e. nitrates. But again, my role in this very specific emergency department that I was at really, really used the PAs for their true intention, which again is that kind of mid-level provider. So on my personal list of things that I used, did not use a lot of the CARDS meds. But of course, when those kinds of things were going on, my preceptor was pretty good about sending me off to go shadow with the MD who was doing that so that I could see how it was used. And of course, if you don't have a preceptor who really is on the lookout for those kinds of opportunities for you, obviously you should be speaking up. Anytime I asked, I was encouraged to go watch the CPR in progress. And I actually even got to do CPR on a patient. I've, I've done that. I can check that box and say that I've done CPR. Now I didn't have to ask to see that. The preceptor I was with was like, absolutely, yes, go, go do that. And then when I got there, the MD, who was aware that I was a student, but I'd never worked with him before, after the actual folks whose job it was to do the CPR, they had, had done a couple cycles of it because the patient had unfortunately been down for 40 minutes, but the ED techs had, I think there were three of them, and they were just rotating through the three of them on doing chest compressions. Towards the end of that 40 minutes, the ED doc let me have my almost two minutes. I think I only lasted about a minute and a half, not because I couldn't, but the staff was just really good and vocal about making sure that I wasn't out of breath or didn't need a break. And I got on the chest and I'm, you know, pumping, pumping. And if I can interject my clinical pearl here, my adrenaline was going and I definitely was pumping too fast. And afterwards, I was able to debrief with one of the actual ED techs who one of their main jobs is to do the chest compressions. So, you know, the expert in doing chest compressions. So I was able to debrief with him after we finished running the code. And he very politely confirmed, of course, that I was doing it too quickly. So my pro tip to those of you who are coming behind me is to sing that song in your head, the ha, 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 staying alive, staying alive, because my adrenaline was running through the roof and I was just, you know, pumping away and it was too fast. But the good news is that we actually got return of sinus for the patient. So he got ROSC. Apparently that's how we say it now. So if you want to, you want to sound cool, the patient got ROSC, I guess. Do you get ROSC? Do you have ROSC? We achieved ROSC. Uh, I don't know. I should know the, the correct way to do that. But anyway, we got ROSC. So that was great. And then we shipped the patient down to the ICU because he was on a ventilator because, of course, we had, well, RT had intubated him right then and there. So we got him back and then promptly shipped him off to the ICU. So I, I don't actually know how that turned out. But at least for our part, 40 minutes down is long, but we did it. So anyway, that's, <laughs> that's a really long story for how I did and did not use cardiology medicine. So that kind of rounds out what I, how I wanted to go through here with my case logs. So I just want to finish up with two other quick topics about other ways that I think you can prepare yourself for your own ED rotation and then the handful of clinical pearls that I didn't get a chance to talk about. So some other ways to prepare yourself, other than the handful of ways that I've kind of snuck in here, there, and everywhere, is number one, remember your stitches timeframes. Just because I put in so many sutures, it was a really nice kind of rounding out to the encounter with the patient that I was able to tell them confidently 
we put in eight stitches and I want you to come back in seven to 10 days and get them out. I always made sure to impress upon my patients that it was really important that they needed to come come back and have a medical provider look at them because I want to make sure that it's not infected and I want to make sure that it healed properly. So tip number one, recall your stitch timeframes. Tip number two, I think I already said this, get real good about your low back pain physical exam and differential. Go to Bates, go to up to date and just get real good about the questions you need to ask, the things that you need the patient to do, whether it's range of motion or walk across the room. Something that I always forgot was checking their pedal pulses, either their dorsalis pedis or their posterior tibial pulse. So checking those two. And then I got really good at that. And then once I got really good at checking for the pedal pulses, I always forgot to do deep tendon reflexes. So put that on your list and be better than me. Uh, third on the list for other ways to prepare is knowing your ACLS and your code algorithms. It's really easy to just be a fly on the wall and just watch the CPR going on and watch the 15 other highly skilled staff in the room do their exact job and duty that they're assigned to. And it's super overwhelming. But as PAs, in theory, we might one day be the leader in the room. And so I fell short of being productive in my own head when I was a fly on the wall because I kind of let my adrenaline run me over and I forgot, okay, so it's been two minutes and what kind of rhythm do we have? Okay, is that going to be shockable or are we just going to use epi? Or, okay, it's a non-shockable rhythm. We've already used epi. What kind of rhythm is up here on the screen? How much longer until I tell the person to get off the chest? Because you can't analyze the rhythm with somebody pumping away on the chest. So you're the one who gets to call, okay, CPR person, get off the chest. I need to analyze the rhythm. And then once I get a rhythm, is it going to be shockable or non-shockable? If it's non-shockable, am I going to do epi or amiodarone? So I really did myself a disservice by not brushing up on all of the options that are available to you, depending on the choose your own adventure that you come to. So brush up on that. Uh, next up is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I guess that's something that's kind of spreading like wildfire through uh, some of the EDs now. Providers apparently are really kind of tuning into the fact that it, it's a thing and it exists. Now, for our class, we were actually had an entire hour and a half lecture on hyperemesis syndrome from marijuana use. And so I felt very well prepared to know that it was a thing and that it essentially just give Haldol and the patient feels better. And then, of course, you need to tell the patient that their precious marijuana is what's causing this. And not a single person that we told it was the marijuana use that's causing their symptoms, not a single one had any interest in stopping their marijuana use. And the vast majority of them didn't even believe us. I know. Shocking. Actually, we had one guy who was in probably about every three days with the exact same thing. So, you know, people going to do what people going to do. Um, and it's just our job to treat them and street them, you know, to use kind of a crass term there. But at the end of the day, all you can do is educate the patient and then it's up to them. And as long as you educated the patient and gave them all their options and tried to explain in the best layman's terms that you can so that they actually have a chance of understanding what you're talking to them. But if you gave them the rundown and they still went home and chose to do the thing that got them in trouble in the first place, I mean, there's not much more you could do. So sleep well. 
So after the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, another thing that I would recommend to brush up on is DVT, signs and symptoms. And what do you do if you think somebody's coming through with a DVT? Spoiler alert, it's called an ultrasound. Uh, so that's for DVT. And then we already talked about how to read and interpret a UA. So those are several ways that you can prepare yourself. And then lo and behold, a few other clinical pearls that I didn't get a chance to pepper into this pretty long segment here, but hopefully it was beneficial. Number one, tramadol, which goes by the brand name of Ultram, which yes, it is a narcotic. It treats moderate to severe pain. And I actually had a lot of patients come through the door who were already on tramadol. Not to be confused with Toradol, right? Don't don't get confused with these sound-alike drugs. So tramadol slash Ultram is a narcotic to treat moderate to severe pain. And Toradol is a heavy-duty NSAID, which we just gave away like candy and truly helped a lot of patients. So tramadol is a narcotic, which sounds like works for a lot of patients moderate to severe pain. But the problem is that it decreases the seizure threshold. So you want to be very careful about who you recommend tramadol to because, again, it can put them at risk for seizures. And can you think of a population of patients who might be at greater risk of having a seizure? I'll give you a second to think and sound nice and pedantic over here. That's right, alcoholics. So again, I'm out here in this rural area and there are a lot of alcoholics who came through our door. And one patient in particular had just started on tramadol about three weeks earlier for back pain. We kind of knew that she was an alcoholic, but if you ask the right questions in your history, the patient will tell you what they have. So she's a known alcoholic. And oh, by the way, three weeks ago, she just started a new prescription for tramadol. So she had a seizure. So clinical pearl number one, tramadol can decrease seizure threshold. Be very weary of using it in your alcoholic population. Uh, Number two, I had a really nice MD give me a good mnemonic for how measles presents. So we've got parents choosing whether or not to vaccinate their kiddos. And so we're at this place where we need to be aware of what measles looks like. He was really good to say that measles kind of looks like somebody dumped a can of red paint on the patient, meaning that the rash starts at their head and kind of spreads downward from there. So this red rash that the patient gets starts on their face and scalp and neck and moves down and out from there. So that's number one for what measles looks like. And then he had one more mnemonic for how to identify measles, which was the three C's, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis. And coryza is just a fancy word for irritation and inflammation of the nose. So it can be a stuffy nose or a runny nose or sneezing or post-nasal drip. So kind of a general URI type of symptoms here. So those are the three C's of measles. All right, moving on into the last few little clinical pearls here. One of them that I kind of vaguely remembered being taught in school was the fact that hyperglycemia can actually cause a pseudo-hyponatremia. And it's such a known issue that you can actually use a web-based or app calculator and input the patient's 
hyperglycemia, and it will tell you what their actual sodium concentration is. So I say that this hyperglycemia is causing a pseudo-hyponatremia because it's not really that the patient is hyponatremic. It's just that the patient is so hypertonic and you get this fluid shift and the patient ends up looking like they're low on sodium, but they're not. And so thankfully, there's these wonderful math nerds out there that have gone and made a calculator for us. So again, just use one of those, input the patient's glucose number, and then it will correct for you what the patient's actual true sodium level is. And the nice thing about this is that once you fix the patient's glucose, you don't actually have to go and chase the hyponatremia. Again, it's a pseudo-hyponatremia. The patient isn't actually low in sodium. It just looks that way because they're so hypertonic from too much glucose in their blood. So you don't have to fix both of the problems because it's actually only one problem. So fix the hyperglycemia and the numbers for their hyponatremia should self-adjust. So that is hyperglycemia causing pseudo-hyponatremia. And then my last two clinical pearls here for you, one of them is actually something that I don't think I'd ever heard before. Maybe it's one of those things that I was totally taught it, but it just went over my head, which happens a lot because I'm kind of all over the place and my brain hangs on to random things half the time. It's entirely possible that I was taught it, but I don't remember ever hearing the words acute mesenteric adenitis. And I'm sure many of my classmates listening are going to go, oh, you don't remember that one? Well, I sure do. And you guys can just go shame me horribly with all of the information that you remember about it. But I don't remember learning about it, so I'm going to talk about it here. And the reason why it's clinical is because it totally looks like appendicitis. And it totally looks like appendicitis because it just like appendicitis, is more common in peds patients. So acute mesenteric adenitis looks a lot like appendicitis in that it's got abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting. And I don't recall if it comes with fever. Somebody can fact check me there and call in and leave me what you found. But I wanted to bring it up because not only does it mimic appendicitis, but I had two separate MDs talk to me about acute mesenteric adenitis, meaning it's a thing and it's on the radar and it should be in your deferential for somebody with acute onset abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting in a pediatric patient for sure. So put it on the differential on with your appendicitis. And then beyond that, I actually had a patient who had it. She was a 17-year-old female, so pediatric, and we ended up getting a scan on her because, of course, we were looking for appendicitis, but turns out wasn't appendicitis. It was acute mesenteric adenitis, which is just an inflammation of the lymph nodes of the mesentery. So that's why it's abdominal pain because, of course, your mesentery is all right there, all sorts of up in your own abdomen. And when the lymph nodes get inflamed, it causes pain. And it's by and large benign from what the MD explained to me. And the patient doesn't have to do anything about it really, other than we gave the patient some pain meds and some Zofran, of course, again, right? Number two drug that we, no, number three drug that we used and sent her home. So she didn't even have to get admitted for it. But the downside is that once you have it once, you're more likely to have it again. But for many patients, just giving them an explanation for where their pain is coming from is better than not knowing. 
So while it kind of sucks to give that diagnosis to somebody, it's largely benign and they don't really have to do anything about it. And it kind of clears up in a matter of days, it sounds like. So again, as long as you can get the patient through the pain and their nausea, they'll feel better in a few days. So that's really good news. So that is my second to last clinical pearl. And my very last clinical pearl for my entire ED rotation is ask your patient why today. This is something that I had two separate MDs really instill in me. Ask the patient, what changed so that you came in today? And I'm sure this is a good pro tip for basically any rotation you'll ever be on, at least in the ED. Why today? And for some patients, it's going to be obvious. They maybe woke up from sleep at 3 a.m. with acute onset abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. That obviously is a huge change from baseline, and they came in to get it checked out. But for other people who maybe have kind of had ongoing foot pain or ongoing low back pain, these people are going to pick today to come in for some reason. And it's really helpful to uncover what that reason is. Now, the vast majority of those people, it's going to be because the pain just got too unbearable, meaning they were taking ibuprofen or their pain reliever of choice for the past week or three weeks or whatever. But for some reason, maybe in the past few days, it just stopped working or they were taking more of it and that was concerning to them. So they decided to come in. So even though it seems like a pretty benign reason, it's really important to know because Every now and then, you might get a patient who says, oh, well, I was out of my narcotics and I wanted a refill. Yeah, that happened a handful of times. And so now you might be going down a different road. So asking the patient, why today? Maybe they got a new collection of symptoms. Maybe they, maybe they were having throat pain for the past three days, but now their ear hurts. So it's kind of a sneaky way to get the patient to tell you the information that you want because... Patients are going to sit down and by and large, they're just going to want to tell you all the things and it's your job to sift through and figure out what is actually pertinent and a good question to kind of zero in on what is actually going on is why today. So highly recommend those final two little pro tips there about how to get your patients to actually tell you what you want them to say. And I don't believe it. I believe we've finished a very lengthy episode of These are all the things that have gone on in my ED rotation, and I'm done. So I want to thank you for hanging in with me this long. This was a really deep dive into my first rotation here in the ED, but hopefully you got some benefit out of listening to me yammer away. And as always, or maybe you don't know, you can call in and leave me a voicemail, and I can either play it or just can appreciate you yelling at me or praising me. But FYI, it's only lasts up to a minute long. So if you call in and leave a voicemail, you'll get cut off after a minute, just FYI. So this is PAK signing off. Thanks for listening to another episode of PAS FML. See you next time.